0: Pray with me, hey, God, your love is too good to leave us here. This borrowed breath is yours, God. And we just praise you. We pray for your presence to just awaken us, take control, fill our hearts, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Help us to believe, God, truly believe that you love us just as you find us. In your name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Bethany, Jake, Zach, Jeff, Kristen, Pat, Megan, tech team, worship team, thank you so much for just creating this space and and all of our volunteers being present and being here to help create this space, to create moments for us to be able to come and to praise and to worship and to just, uh, to just lay our exhaustion or our drive and our determination or perhaps our fears, our anxieties, just leave them at the door and just open our hearts to walk in here and say, God, what do you have for me in this space? And so... Uh, that last song is my favorite worship song. Jake sent it to me back in 2019 when it released, and and he's like, hey, um, you know, I think, you know, you'd really enjoy this, and and so I started listening to the lyrics and I just fell in love with the message as someone who has, has battled uh, insecurities and anxieties and, and, and struggling with the question, who am I and what am I here for? And, and that quickly became my sermon writing song, As You Find Me. I've, uh, for four years now, every sermon I've written, I've, I've taken out a legal pad and, and had my um, S-gel pen and I've, I've written and, and put what God has placed on my heart with that song on repeat in my ears and and it's just there's so much truth and power but encouragement in that message and it just perfectly went along with the sermon today and so I called Jake on gave him plenty of time on Tuesday to see if he <laughs> he and the, the team would be willing to to uh, throw a curveball and and uh, uh put this song in the set just to prepare our hearts for the message today and and it, it ended up you know working out okay but Hey, if this is your first time visiting, my name is Jordan. I'm our online pastor and one of our teaching pastors here at Crossbridge. And have the privilege, just like we sang in the bridge of that song, to carry on our series, I'm in. God, I'm in. I'm yours. What does that look like? What does that mean? It's been this series that we've walked through the last couple of weeks, really trying to figure out what does it truly mean to be rooted in purpose? And if we are in Christ, what does it look like for us to be all in? And so three weeks ago, Kim, our Next Steps pastor, kicked off the series with this message, I'm Invited, walking us through this story of this woman who had been looked down upon probably for most of her life simply because she was a woman. And and so society had already knocked her down a tear in value. And yet God had elevated that by welcoming her and inviting her into her, his presence And so she came prepared uh, uh, with all that she had, probably a year's wages of perfume. And she poured it out at Jesus' feet. And Jesus invited her and the Pharisees, the law lovers and law distributors and law followers were disgusted that Jesus would welcome somebody like her in his presence. And the same happens for us today. And then last week, I continued the, the series I'm In by talking about I'm invested and really just hit home this concept and this question, are we in love with the idea of being a Christ follower more than actually being a Christ follower? And it came from this, uh, this book by Eugene Cho, a, a pastor and a nonprofit president and an author uh, who just challenged me with the idea, are we more in love with the idea of saving the world than actually saving the world? And the way we know the answer to that question is by seeing where our investments are. And for some of that, that is generosity or service or prayer life or time in the word or time in relationship, attending services, walking with people. Because what we've noticed is that, and Crossbridge is, is no stranger to this statistically speaking, is that the church, especially in the West, but the global church in 2023 has become so complacent and comfortable and really idolized the God of apathy. And so a lot of us are quick to post online or quick to vote at the polls or quick to be passionate about X, Y, and Z internally, or even amongst our little peers and our groups, but how has that led to action? And so if we are in Christ, what does it look like for us to be invested in the kingdom of God, but also in the local church? And so that was last week. Today I'm continuing our message with probably my favorite concept as a pastor. It's, it's what I find the most joy in because it is what our identity It's the basis for identity, the why for who we are in Christ, and it's I'm invaluable. I'm invaluable. And so would you just pray again with me as we open our hearts to what God has in store with us? Hey, God, we invite you into this space. You're already here, but we we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, soften our minds, eliminate distractions, And God, in this silence, we just pray that you would work. In these words, we pray that you would work. In this space, we pray that you would move, that our hearts would be opened. And for those watching online, God, and perhaps the distractions uh, that being at home provides, I just ask, God, that they would be open to the message as well. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill this place and remind us that we are invaluable to you. In your name I pray, amen. Well, I'm invaluable. Today for the message, we're going to walk through two different passages, one in Genesis chapter 1 and the other in Luke chapter 15. And we're going to first go to Genesis chapter 1 because that's kind of the foundation and the heart of the message today, this concept and the almost the root of why we are invaluable. It gives us the why. It reminds us that because we are Christ's creation— that it, is, it goes so much deeper than, uh, than just uh, we were created by God. There's something significant that happens. And so if you want to turn with me to chapter one of Genesis. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, believed to uh, possibly have been written by, by Moses, the first five books known as the Torah. And we're going to be in the first chapter of the first book right at the beginning. And Moses is, is articulating uh, just what God is creating. And so in the first uh, you know part of the chapter, the first 25 verses, we see uh, God just creating things by speaking them into existence. Let there be light. Uh, and it was so. And God saw that it was good. And he goes on to animals and to the seas and to the plants and, and to the vegetation and all of this and, and bang, 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 bang. And God spoke it into existence and he saw that it was good. Well, then we get to verses 26 and 27, and there's almost a change up in the language that Moses records. It's significant enough that Moses, probably hundreds of years later, was, it was just uh, through the word of mouth over the centuries as they're recounting the story of the creation story that it was significant enough to change up the language of verse 26 where it's not, uh, it's not God speaking it. He's still speaking us into existence, but rather than just let there be, it is let us make and it's this really significant change-up that we see in the text because it it kind of just shows this collaborative effort that God has amongst himself with, with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And it is trying to draw our attention to this unique detail of there's something different about what I'm gonna create next. It's not just let there be, it's let us make. And this is what... Moses writes in Genesis chapter 1, he says this, verse 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, don't miss this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? One, it means that we're image bearers of the greatest being to ever be. It means that we are reflecting and imaging his character and his likeness and the embodiment of what it means to be God. It means that we are uniquely and wonderfully and fearfully made by the creator himself. And that we are, in a sense, set apart. We are holier than that of creation. That we are set apart and set above and called to rule, as we see in the next couple of verses, that which God created before humanity. And there's something unique and powerful and different, some might say, invaluable about what God just created. Sons and daughters of the Most High. And because we are made in God's image, we are invaluable to God. It's actually why his heart breaks when we hurt other people. We see this just a few chapters later, actually, in Genesis chapter 4. One of my favorite uh, chapters to do whenever I've uh, led weddings is the chapter of Cain killing Abel. Isn't that such a great wedding story? (laughs) Whenever I do weddings and I talk with the the couple I'm marrying, I ask, do you want a Jordan sermon or do you want a traditional sermon? And three for three couples have asked for a Jordan message. (laughs) And so I'm like, well, when Cain killed Abel, and why it's my favorite is because the best dialogue happens, in my opinion, between God and humanity, where God comes to humanity and says, Cain, where is your brother? And Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? It's the greatest question, I think, in response to God that we have throughout Scripture, because then God responds with, What have you done? And I believe, then, the rest of scriptures, the rest of the 65 books and the 66 letters that we have from um, from the, the canon and, and the scriptures, God sets us up to say, "Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You are your neighbor's keeper. Your stranger's keeper. Your enemy's keeper." And why is this significant for today? Because God's heart breaks when we sin and when we hurt. Image bearers of God. Because just like we're invaluable, so are they. But here's kind of the the kicker for this whole message. Is the majority, majority of us never get to the belief that we are invaluable in God's eyes and image bearers in God's eyes because we struggle with feeling inadequate. I'm reading a book right now, about halfway through it, called Soundtracks by author and public speaker, John Acuff. And within this book, he, he sends out some research to where he polls 10,000 people and asks them this simple question, do you feel inadequate? And 73% of the 10,000 respondees said Yes. And so at a much lesser scale, I polled Crossbridge Community Church's Facebook campus. And I asked 32 people, do you feel inadequate? (laughs) And so take this statistically speaking with what you will, but 70% of the 32 responses said yes. And so the research lines up with that of even a larger majority That people are feeling less than, disqualified, inadequate, not good enough, not strong enough, not smart enough, not bold enough, not worthy enough. Our job seems less important. Or perhaps we're just sitting in this space asking the question what's next? Perhaps you've exited one season of your life and now you're sitting in that kind of holy discontent, this, this just uh, discomfort, this tension, this space where you feel God tugging your heart somewhere, but you're kind of in the in between and you're asking yourself, where is the good in this? Where is the value? Was I created for more, or am I just being arrogant, expecting something? And so we kind of sit in the space of discomfort or complacency or apathy even. And we wrestle with the thoughts of feeling inadequate or the prideful thoughts of we're better than them. And so what would it look like for us to switch our mindsets as Christ followers? Again, if we're invited to the throne of Jesus, and if we truly want to be invested in the kingdom of God and in the local church, then we've got to believe that we are invaluable in God's eyes, but so are they. And so what would it look like for us as a church to switch our mindsets from things that we feel are inadequate about ourselves to believe in we are invaluable. And if you're asking that question today, friends, Jesus answers this question in two different facets in Luke chapter 15. So if you want to turn with me there, either uh, in your own scriptures or they'll also be on the screen. We're now going to jump about 42 books forward. 41 books forward to the New Testament. The third book in the New Testament, it's, a, it's a, the Gospel of Luke, the third testimonial account that we have of Jesus' life on earth. We're gonna go to chapter 15, which is somewhere in the middle of Luke's Gospel. And uh, Luke is my favorite Gospel because it goes directly into the book of Acts, which is kind of the, the play-by-play of the early church. And Luke, writing both Luke in Acts, wants it to be clear that he went out as a historian and as a physician and gathered the evidence. And so he is historically writing just these texts of what Jesus' life was like in the gospel. And so we get to chapter 15, and almost the tone of Jesus' words that are recorded start to switch up. And, And really throughout the whole Gospel of Luke, you can see that Luke is trying to target a specific audience. And when we get to Luke 15, that audience is the Pharisees, as well as the sinners. There's two groups. And so the Pharisees of their day, like we talked a little bit earlier, the law lovers, the law givers, the law abiders, the law distributors, they were the the righteous people, religious people of the Israelites. And so the Pharisees, you know, they continue to be disgusted by Jesus' life, but at the same time are almost attracted to This individual who attracted sinners and sat with tax collectors and invited the least of these, the women, to sit at his feet and to take part in the message. So we get to Luke chapter 15, and there's three stories or parables that Jesus starts to share. And here's what's so fascinating about parables, if you're unfamiliar. Parables on the surface, if you just read them surface level, you miss the point. The surface level is the obvious answer. Jesus, however, wants to direct our attention to the less obvious answer within parables. And so there's two, often two messages you can get from them. Well, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus shares three stories back to back to back to kind of hit home this concept of who he is for. And this is what Luke writes in chapter 15, verse one through seven. Luke writes this, now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully Puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. There's so much at play in these seven verses. And I don't want you to miss the heart of God, but also the call from God. Because it's, it's, like I said, it's two-faceted in this parable. Jesus is, first, he's talking to the religious leaders who had just asked, who is this man who allows sinners to sit with them? For those who aren't familiar with one of Jesus' tactics in his 33 years of life, he was prone to this tactic called table fellowship. And he what would what, what it, it would look like in their culture In their day, growing up, whoever you ate with, that was almost a sign of who you agreed with or who you valued or who you lived with or acted, lived, or believed like. And so Jesus kind of flipped the script with his table fellowship and he would eat with the sinners and the tax collectors and women and even the Pharisees and he would party with the young people at weddings and he would create wine and everybody would be like, Who is this guy? But they hated him for it because he would value the least of these and the marginalized and the sinners. And so Jesus is talking to these people who society had casted out tax collectors because the individuals who were the marginalized hated them because they would charge more taxes than they were required to and then pocketed themselves. And so nobody likes tax collectors. And then he was sitting with sinners, perhaps prostitutes, perhaps uh, the unclean, the immoral, those who had been casted out by society and the Jewish leaders. And then there's a third group of people that are there, the Pharisees. And Jesus is sitting amongst all of them and acting as if he accepts and loves them all. And so they ask him, who is this man? And Jesus shares and he says, hey, if one of you had a 100 sheep and that sheep were to run away, wouldn't you as a Pharisee go after that one and leave the 99? And he's playing in this imagery and saying, God does the same. Again, the obvious message is that God chases after the one and leaves the 99. Here's the less obvious message. God is also calling out the 99 for staying put. God is chasing after the one because the one is invaluable to him. But God is also calling out the church and the righteous 99 for not going after the one either. It's a two part message that we miss out on so much. Because we're so focused on the one and the lost and when we are the one and when we are the lost. But what about us as the church and the 99 who aren't chasing after the one either? And so God then shows us this imagery about how the father picks up the one sheep and he kind of raises them from the ground. And it's this imagery showing us of what it looks like to go from fallen and sinfulness on the ground to be raised up in God's glory through the son of Jesus on his shoulders and goes back and he celebrates and all of heaven will celebrate with the one who is saved now while still calling out the 99 for not going after and being the church. You see this whole process though and why it's kind of two-faceted. One, talking about the, the um, invaluable child who ran off but also calling the 99 into action is because so many of us, once we believe that we are God's child and invaluable to God, we often stay put in that belief. And we hold people to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to. And this is what Paul, he kind of calls out the church in Rome. Not calls him out, sorry. He encourages the church in Rome with this fancy term known as sanctification. It's this fancy Christian term, Christianese term that we talk about um, that in its simplest terms means to become more like Jesus, uh, the process and the journey of becoming more like Jesus. In its simplest terms, that's what sanctification means. And pretty much the entire letter to the Roman church is a letter about sanctification. What it looks like to sacrifice and to serve and to love and to live and to lean into truth and to be bold and to find your calling, but also to walk with the least of these and the marginalized and the abused and the hurting And so we get to Romans chapter five, verse eight, one of the most famous verses in all of the letters to the Romans, and Paul writes that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, all have messed up. And so when we hold people to a higher standard than we hold ourselves to, we look like the 99 righteous sheep. And so what does the process of sanctification looks like? One, it means grace for yourself and grace for others as you continue to move onward. And that's why Paul says in Corinthians or Philippians, I believe, he says, I press on. I continue to press on. And so we get to Romans chapter 12, verse two, when Paul continues this message of sanctification, and he says, what does this look like? By the transformation and renewal of your mind, day in and day out. Why? Because again, Now his letters to the Corinthians, it's crazy. Again, Paul's talking about sanctification to the Romans and to the Philippians and to the Corinthians. And he gets to chapter 5, verse 17, and he talks about renovating the old with the new. That's what sanctification is. Walking away from what was and going on to what is. I press on, I press on. Now why is all of this relevant? Okay, Because if we are image bearers of God, we are called to reflect that. And that comes in multiple ways. One, it means walking away from our life of sin, our life of pornography, our life of alcoholism, addictions, our life of placing our identity in different things, of this world chasing after idols, and to lean into God's kingdom. But two, it also means chasing after the one and walking with them in grace as they stumble along as well. Because they are made in the image of God too. You are an image bearer. And because of that, you are invaluable to God but so are they. The person who votes different, looks different, and eats way too much Chipotle. Yeah. I need grace. Don't you just say, you? Oh, man. The person who's hurt you, the person who has hurt them, is an image bearer. Doesn't mean they're an action bearer. Oftentimes, that's why sanctification is so important. Our actions are far from Christ. But if we reminded ourselves every day that, yep, I'm the one sheep who runs away some days and in need of the 99 to come after me, but at the same time, I'm the 99 some days and there's the one and we're going to go after them. It can lead to humility that will transform this world. So here's kind of how I wanna close today. I wanna give three just wrap-up thoughts and then two very simple next steps. I'm gonna put all three wrap-up ideas on the screen at the same time just to walk us through the message. Here's the first one. We are invaluable to God. That's the heart of this message. Why are we invaluable to God? Because we are made in God's image. We are set apart. God has made us to be above that which he also created to lead and to cultivate and to serve We are invaluable to God, but guess what? So are they. Number two, there is nothing, just like we sing about, As You Find Me, there is nothing we could ever do to change God's love for us. Think about the people who crucified our Savior. And Jesus is on the cross between two individuals, both of which who were dying for their sins. And Jesus looked at one of them and said, because you acknowledge me in front of these people, yeah, 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 your past is a mess, okay? But guess what? On the last few breaths of your life, you are invaluable to me, and I will see you in heaven. If the thief on the cross, which is a couple minutes left to live, is still seen as invaluable to God, so are you. But so are they. Your enemy someone who's hurt you, etc. Last one. Because of that truth, God's love won't let us stay where we are. We sing about this and as you find me, your love won't let me stay here. Your love's too good to leave me here. That's the process of sanctification. You can't just be in love with the idea of following God. You have to actually follow God. What does that look like? By serving, by sacrificing, by giving, by uh, spending time in prayer, spending time in the word, walking with the least of these, chasing after God's own heart, day in and day out, leaving our life of sin leaving our life of temptation, working on the ministry of reconciliation with relationships that have, been, uh, that have been harmed, or working on the ministry of reconciliation with people whom the church has harmed, and continuing to walk alongside the least, the lost, the lonely, and the forgotten. That's the process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, and seeking redemption for our sins. So here's your two next steps. It's actually one for a group of people, and one for another group of people. If perhaps you're sitting there or watching online and you believe you are invaluable, you hold that belief, every day that you wake up this morning, I want this to be your prayer for the next seven days, okay? Feet on the ground, simple prayer. God, help me see others as invaluable to you today. Simple prayer. Second next step for the other group of people, if perhaps you are struggling with your value and with bearing the image of Christ, here's your next step. When you roll out of bed today, or then, well, if you're still in bed, perhaps you are watching online, hashtag ad, okay? But for the rest of the seven days, feet on the ground saying, God, help me believe I am invaluable to you because I bear your image. Two prayers that I believe can change the trajectory for our life. Will you pray with me? Hey God, Thank you for this space, for your people, for your word, for your Holy Spirit who's dwelling among us, captivating our hearts, God. I just pray that we would receive this message, that it would change us, that it would flow through us, that we would be reminded of it throughout the week and that we would lean into these next steps and watch these prayers change our lives. In your name I pray.